So, we are continuing our study in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul's letter to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's what he said, and it's interesting because we don't really know whether he intended to be speaking just to the church or whether, because he put it that way, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, he also meant those who are not yet in the church, those who don't know it yet, those who are loved by God and called to be saints but haven't received that call yet or, you know, haven't come to understand it. Their eyes of their understanding haven't been awakened. So I think that is a very beautiful way to listen to this book because of Paul's missionary consciousness and his zeal that he was speaking, and he knew it uh, in some way, that he was speaking beyond what anyone knew but what God knew. So we started this series a couple of weeks ago looking at thankfulness, chapter 1, verse 8, as the place to begin. And then last week, Pastor Dan focused on verses 1 through 6. And this week, again, we'll continue to unpack Paul's introductory salutation in this letter to a group of people who he, for the most part, had never met, although they had certainly heard a lot about each other. So in these opening phrases, according to the custom, but much more so because it was Paul, Paul introduces himself and his business with the Romans like this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he then further defines in very powerful language pertaining to the prophets, the scriptures, Jesus, the anointed one, the son of God, declared in power by his resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, through whom Paul has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, for the sake of Jesus' name among all nations, including all who are called to belong to him, including all of them in the past, all of us here today, and as we heard on Jesus' lips in the first reading, all those who have yet not yet believed, but who will come to the declaration of the good news through uh, our declaration that we ourselves have received. And that is the recap of Paul's first sentence uh, in the book of Romans. So it's easy to see that this is no simple salutation. Right from the outset, Paul gives this message the gravity and the honor it deserves. He speaks of one as one who is sent of God to declare God's victory and sovereignty, his reign and his rule over Rome, over the nations, over death itself and over sin, victory over rebellion against God, victory over the punishment for sin. Paul speaks for God's calling and knitting us together as one tribe, as one family in loyal fealty to God and belonging to Jesus Christ. He brings good news from God. That is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is an urgent message, and there's urgency in Paul's tone. It's filled with fervent desire and longing. Just the introduction. Paul's choice of words, the construction of his sentences, the verb forms all suggest boldface and italics with double exclamation points. And I'm going to ask you to listen for this urgency as I read this passage today. Romans 1, verses 7 through 15. May God bring life through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness 
whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Stat. The urgent order in a medical setting that tells everyone, heads up, emergency, pay attention, get to your stations, be ready to help, immediately. It's an order for adrenaline. And once the salutation, once the situation gets sorted out, it yields to resetting and restoring and restocking and breathing until the next emergency comes. It's an important response. It's a life-saving response, but it has its limits. Stat has its limits. A baker's dozen years ago, author James Kunstler wrote a book entitled The Long Emergency, described by reviewers at the time at once terrifying and riveting white-knuckle reading. And still today, it is called as relevant and authentic as it ever was. The emergency that Kunstler described in 2005 was the global over-extraction, over-dependence, and subsequent slowdown of peak oil as our primary energy source, and the gradual but inevitable related outcomes that we're facing today. The degradation of our environment, water scarcity, climate-based and famine-based war and migration, epidemic diseases, decaying infrastructure, international terrorism. Kunstler described all this. A slow-moving train wreck in a nutshell. A long emergency coming toward us, inexorably but silently, gradually, in a way that could be ignored from day to day or forgotten about once we get used to the idea of it. Do you know what I'm saying? We humans are very adaptable. We're designed to handle emergencies, but not sustained emergencies. Sustained emergencies become trauma. And we only adjust to trauma by becoming emergencies ourselves, twisted, knotted inside ourselves and with others, not who we are supposed to be, no longer able to respond as we should. And I'm not going to preach about that today. That's not going to be the sermon. But on the practical side of it, one could say that the Christians in Rome had been living through a long emergency, Yes, they had protection of sorts as a sect of Judaism under the Roman provision that Jews were allowed to worship their one God and practice their own religion as long as they didn't make trouble. But Rome was always on the lookout to suppress troublemakers. And those Jews who followed Christ in Rome in those days could really stir up a synagogue. For that very reason, all the Jews in Rome had already been expelled by Emperor Claudius for a time, and then returned by the time that Paul wrote this letter. 
That is how Paul came to know some of the Christians that he mentions at the end of the letter, even though he had never been to Rome himself. For example, Aquila and Priscilla, he was assisted in ministry in Corinth by them while they were on temporary banishment from Rome, their home city. Emergency circumstances. Now, that sort of circumstantial emergency never bothered Paul, though, did it? He had learned in all circumstances to be content. As he said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Yet, you heard it. There is urgency in Paul's words to the beloved of God in Rome. This is not an emergency of circumstance or environment, but rather an urgency of the spirit. It is a long urgency, a lifelong urgency. And whether or not we as Christians acknowledge responsibility toward the environment or circumstances in the world because of God's mandate in the beginning in Eden, one thing is certain. We have clearly received in the gospel that same long urgency of the spirit that we heard in the first readings today. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The pressing urgency that fuels Paul's passion was this. Will people heed God's call and accept God's rescue through his righteousness, and will they live? Or will they refuse and be confronted with God's wrath? Will they accept Jesus as their proxy in the face of righteous judgment we all deserve and accept his love, or will they die? Here is the great divide, the essential crossroads, and the crux of the matter. We will see these Verses coming up in a couple of weeks, but I'm offering a sneak preview in order to communicate and help us understand the urgency of the gospel to us today and the urgency that Paul felt as he addressed himself to Rome. The key is found in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in the right in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith and in verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men the mission of the gospel remains urgent in every life in every generation and yet it is a long urgency our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed yet our mindset is that we are called to live at peace with everyone as far as possible, sustaining hope and trust, lifting prayer without anxiety for anything. In the words of John Piper, urgency and gratitude are glued together in one heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Urgency and peace are glued together as well. It goes without saying that if we believe in God and that we have been called and set apart by God to do his will, that each one of us must get on board to become a potent expression of the good news and all that that entails. So the question that arises is this. How can we live in the passionate urgency of the gospel and the deep peace of Christ at the same time over the long haul? How can we do this in community and so become conduits of faith? How can we do this without accommodating to the length of time and just letting it go? 
Corollary to that, what are the long spiritual urgencies that are bubbling in your life? Take a look inside. What concerns are bearing down on your heart even now? Where is the call? What feels incomplete? What makes you restless? Where have you been drawn with a spiritual passion, but keeping it alive long-term has been a challenge? How do we live into it? How do we do it? How can we make that sustained urgency sustainable? Let's see what Paul has to say to the Christian community in Rome that can help us to be faithful and fruitful. I noticed four characteristics of Paul's approach to being a servant of Christ Jesus that contributed to his effectiveness. These are a broad and constant thankfulness, a regular, long-term, faithful prayer life, a commitment to community, and a pressing sense of obligation. First, broad and constant thankfulness. Paul said in verse 7, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Dan spoke about this already a couple of weeks ago, so I'll just briefly reiterate. Thankfulness is a key to refreshment. The scriptures are so full of the exhortation to rejoice, connected to peace and strength, that I can't even begin to cover them. You'll just have to look them up. You will enjoy it. It's encouraging. But there are just a few. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall secure your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And here's another. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song, I shall thank him. One of God's attributes is wisdom. God's word is wise. The world sometimes lags behind in figuring this out, but studies have been conducted now, and it's empirically proven. I've taken the online course from University of California, Berkeley, The Science of Happiness. I've read the research that proves the truth of Proverbs 22.17. A cheerful heart is good medicine. Try it for yourself. It's refreshing and sustainable. And here, specifically, Paul is expressing thankfulness for this yet unknown crowd of believers because the news of their faith has been broadcast all over. Think how much more encouraged and how much less alone you feel whenever you're surrounded by your brothers and sisters in Christ, praising and celebrating and doing just what you're doing to bring glory to God. God inhabits our praises and our heart is filled with him when we praise. Paul has made a practice of being thankful to God for other believers because of their faith. We can try that too. Take the church directory, for example, and every day move to a new name or picture and thank God, not just for that person, but for that person's faith and see how much it will strengthen this community. We can do it with thanks. And then we need prayer. Paul wants the Christians in Rome to know without a shadow of a doubt that he has been in constant prayer about them for a very long time, both praying for them and speaking to God about his fervent desire to visit with them. Why would this be so important to Paul? It has to do with the way that Jesus called him on the road to Damascus. Paul, you see, had been a very proud man, Proud of his Jewish heritage, proud of his education as a Pharisee, 
proud of his ability to keep fine details of the law and thereby imagine himself with a lot of gold stars on his tally sheet of righteousness with God. Then God tapped him for the kingdom of God, Christ. When God tapped him, he was breathing out murderous threats against any Jews who dared to pollute the purity of the faith with that blasphemous talk about Jesus. Paul was an exclusivist and a, and a purist and a believer in punitive levels of perfectionism. Punitive perfectionism. How ironic that Jesus should send him to the goyim, to the unclean, the uncircumcised, the Pharisees sent by God to the Gentiles with the message of their acceptance by God, by faith in God's righteousness alone through Christ on the cross. Who would ever have imagined it? So who started the Christian movement in Rome? Most likely, it was Jews who were Roman citizens. The most likely theory is that Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost were converted by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon Jesus' followers in the upper room like tongues of fire and 5,000 new believers were added to their number. Some of those thousands were visiting from Rome and returning to Rome. They went back to their synagogues, bearing faith in Christ as Lord. So miraculous. The Christian community there grew, probably through house churches scattered around the city. To this day in Rome, there remain the ancient homes that were known as the meeting places, the house churches, like Priscilla and Aquila's house that Paul mentions in chapter 16. I've seen them. They're right beside the fashion houses like American Eagle and the shopping districts and all that. There's a little plaque on the side. This was the house church. Amazing. Jewish believers established the community in Rome, and they brought into the faith people of other nations. They understood it too. Greeks, Romans, countrymen. And they taught these Gentiles to be followers of the way of Messiah Jesus maybe with a little too much of the law. Debatable. But then, the Jews were all expelled from Rome for ten years or so, and the Gentile converts remained and took over the leadership and became strong and predominant, so that by the time the Jewish believers returned, the balance of power had changed culturally. So that was the situation that drew Paul to want to pursue his calling in Rome. He himself was a Jew and a Roman citizen, a former teacher of the law and now a fervent messenger of grace. Who better to go there? Who better to help them understand in that particular community, the interweaving of the law and the promises into the message of the gospel? And because Paul was so keenly aware of the goodness of this fit, he had been praying on it and asking God to let him go there, to let him at it for a very long time. Do you know, the way that Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters is affectionate. It's close. It's like family. It's committed in a way that has staying power. It's committed in a way that's surprising for someone who who you never met, for people who you never met. But he had met them through the Spirit of God in prayer. I think that's because he understood his calling and that understanding led him to prayer and that prayer deepened his love and that love fueled his passion and that passion promoted his persistence. Who or what has God called us to or called you to? Where is our harvest supposed to be? Is there a forgotten group of people, a hidden group 
that the Spirit has pinpointed for you or for this church. Maybe it would be an ethnic or a cultural group in our area who are not represented or who are underrepresented in our congregation. If you know who that might be, or if you don't know, then pray on it until you can say, God is my witness. I'm praying for you. Let us join forces for the kingdom. Someone has been overlooked here, and we need to fix it. Why? Not for self-aggrandizement, not for pride or for guilt, but for Jesus' sake, because Jesus wants it. You can always safely return to that, because Jesus wants it. I must let my life, my time, my schedule, and my interests be cracked open for him and carry that treasure in a jar of clay. There's probably nothing that can stop a drive like that. Paul caused a riot in Jerusalem, was arrested, made an appeal to power, got sent to Rome on the government dime, preached every step of the way, was shipwrecked, snake-bitten, did arrive, and spent two years under house arrest. Think safety and access in a kind of evangelist residency. He was unstoppable. And here you see a foundation of that drive was long-term, consistent prayer Fervent, impassioned prayer. Prayer that is not ashamed to go deep into the heart, to let the tears flow when tears are called for, or to rejoice with those who rejoice, or to be anything but casual, to enter into the details, to find out about the particulars, and to hope one day to get to the place where the action is. Paul had a commitment to community. He had a vision that we're all together, the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Social inclusion and connections equal greater happiness, better health, better immune response, better living, less pain. Made in God's image. We are designed for life and community. Again, the studies in well-being demonstrate that higher levels of social inclusion and stronger social connections yield greater happiness and so forth. But don't mind that. Just think about the Godhead of the Trinity as best We can try to understand that God lives in community. Jesus prays for us to be one with them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why do we think so small? If we were thinking like Paul when we think about it, plan for and pray for the believers in Huntington Valley, we'll be thinking not only of those who are already here in our church, but also the ones whom God is calling but who have not yet heard and don't yet know that we belong together. Who might they be? Ask Dan Morrison about his map of ethnic populations and percentages around here. You might be surprised how colorful we would become if God would grant that kind of harvest to us. Paul wanted to go to Rome to reap some harvest among the Gentiles there to give them some encouragement and then also to let their strength in Christ flow towards him. It's kind of funny how that comes across in verses 11 and 12. Paul was dictating this letter to a scribe. And you can hear him first stating that he longs to impart a spiritual gift. After all, he is a great and well-known A-list apostle. But then I imagine the Holy Spirit catches him and reminds him of body life and humility. And perhaps Paul also remembers the help that he hopes the Romans can give him for a mission to Spain. And he backtracks. And he adds, that is... That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. I like that. Again, how sweet it is when one of us who may be leading something can say to a participant, thank you for your contributions. 
God used you to strengthen my faith. I thank God for you. That kind of grace sharing is something that has often happened in the adult Sunday school between the services with our teachers who are so well prepared, yet so open and eager to welcome the insights that the Lord would bring through each member so that the body can build itself up in love. Thank you so much for your examples in doing that. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing, 1 Thessalonians 5. And as each part does its work, the body grows and builds itself up in love, Ephesians 4. Finally, and most pressing for Paul, there was the obligation and the indebtedness that he felt as one who had received a great gift, a gift so overwhelming in its scope that it could not be contained, and it only becomes complete in being shared. Each of us also have been given that gift, a gift given to you from God, a gift so large that it fills the world and cannot be contained, and it only becomes complete in being shared, or it stops being what it is. Salvation is part of it. Being born again is a very important part of it. Being reconciled to God is an essential part of it. But hear me well, the gospel itself is not a private thing. It's not supposed to work that way at all. I am under obligation, Paul said, and I am so eager to preach to you also. In another place, he said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. To whom is Paul obligated so fiercely? To whom is our obligation? Is it to Jesus for saving us? John Piper explained it like this. Paul's obligation cannot be to God because his salvation was a gift. A free gift of faith by grace alone. Not of any person's effort. No one except God can take any credit for it at all. We're not obligated to Christ for saving us. Paul was a servant of Christ Jesus in the love of God, in obedience to Christ. What was the obligation then? Simply this. The obligation that this gospel doesn't belong to me. It belongs to us. It's not for hoarding, not for keeping to oneself, not for storing up somehow. It's like manna. It can't even be stored up. Salvation is for now, the eternal now. But the obligation we have in the gospel is to the next person and the next person who have not yet heard. Has the gospel been burning a hole in your spiritual pocket? Pay it forward. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk about it. Practice it. And while we may be afraid at times that we would scare people away, we also dare not disrespect God that way by refusing to honor his name in the world that he has redeemed. So I think there are ways to say to someone without being frightening, Jesus is calling you. Won't you let him come in? With thankfulness, prayer, community, and obligation, This was Paul's pattern and how to actively live in the passion and the urgency of the gospel while dwelling in the deep peace of Christ. So are we? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, and Jesus, a lover of our souls, thank you so much for this good news. Thank you for entrusting it to us. Oh, my. Thank you for the spirit who gives life to our words and gives words to our lives.
Thank you for the power that is in your word. Thank you that this isn't supposed to be a community that stops here, but that you have designs on those beyond. And you are going to fill us with enthusiasm and with ability to make those, to make your message known. We know this. So bring us and lead us into prayer, into community, into urgency, into obligation, into thankfulness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.